in Auckland, uh, Michael Hurst from the Auckland Theatre Company needs very little introduction. He's strongly identified with Shakespeare. Um, one of his recent solo shows is No Holds Barred. Get it? Barred. And in 2023, he's directing and acting King Lear. Thank you, Michael, for taking up, uh, following Sophie in this um, activation of yeah. the first folio. And I just have to say the play's the thing. Uh, um, so I, I just had a few remarks to give and I thought I'd respond you know, organically, though I have prepared some things. But interestingly, I did my first Shakespeare directing at the Outdoor Summer Shakespeare in 1987. And I chose Measure for Measure because I wanted to do something that had problems and you know, it's a problem comedy. And uh, that was in front of the student union and um, got some good reviews, made me sick with anxiety, let me just say at the outset. And then two years later, I did a production of King Lear, which inexplicably I set in ancient Babylon. Um, and uh, we built a completely, we built a sort of a pop-up globe, if you like. We had a completely surrounded uh, set of scaffolding hung with sacks to represent, according to one reviewer, the sagging skin of the aging king. I had no idea about that. Let me just say that was a, a you know fortunate um, coincidence. However, on in that production, I was directing, but two nights before we opened, the actor playing uh, uh, Gloucester had a, a bit of a crisis and lost his nerve and took off to Wellington. So I had to do it, and um, I was this. I've seen a video of it, and I'm in this impossibly healthy, fit young Gloucester with a stuck-on beard. Uh, one night I um, I wear glasses and I didn't have contact lenses then. And so I'd be standing in the wings in my Babylonian outfit and my big long beard, uh, looking at the scenes beforehand, and then I would go on. And so in the storm scene, when I came on to rescue the king, I forgot to take my glasses off. So I'm walking on with these big 80s lenses. And I thought, oh, the audience are loving this. And we're all acting, talking and whispering and pointing. I thought, this is great. I must be being really brilliant. Um, I walked off and this other actor looked at me and went like that to me. And, oh my God. However, George Hannaday, who you may know, is a, 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 isn't here anymore, but he's an actor. He came and saw it. He thought it was a genius stroke that um, Gloucester, who's going to have his eyes gouged out, should actually wear glasses. And Gloucester actually says, of course, to Edmund, you know, what is the paper you were hiding? Come on, the quality of nothing have not such need to hide itself. If it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. So Shakespeare actually mentions that in the play as a sort of pointer to where it's going. Then, um, and then uh, I, I also saw, I think, that Tempest, because that was my first, I just arrived in Auckland, and I'm great friends with Simon. Um, and then I did another one, um, it might have been 2018, or a little bit earlier, I did a Midsummer Night's Dream, because um, I wanted to explore the darkness in that play. Uh, so I had all the fairies. I just said, if you wanted to be a fairy, you had to be 65 or older. That was it. And um, I had a wonderful time with that because, of course, the fairies are really upset with Oberon and Titania because they're not actually having sex. And so all the seasons are upset and the fairies can't be. So I had them all angry and annoyed. And I remember Tom uh, Bishop, our friend, who said, yes, you need to ask them to turn up with rancid charisma uh, and that's what we did and i'll never forget one of those fairies one night came walking out at the beginning picked someone in the audience and said 
is that my seat? Like this, everybody was completely freaked out. But it was a wonderful way to do that thing which Shakespeare does so well, which is address the audience directly while maintaining the structure of the play. Um, another thing I wanted to just begin with, really, and um, is I love it that quote uh, from um, about the living document, the living document we have. But I'm an actor and a director, so my version of a living document is the thing that is spoken and we must always pay attention to that i've just been talking to some students because i'm doing king lear and um and i've done a few of the plays now and know them kind of backwards um uh, about it and i i said to them you know the thing about shakespeare is and it's in hamlet hamlet is a really good go-to for how things stand up in shakespeare um, I always remember a line in Hamlet. I've played it twice now, Hamlet, and I've directed myself twice, and it's arrogant, but not the rest. Um, uh, no one else was prepared to do it. Um, Hamlet, when he sees the ghost of his father and gets told the information about the fact that the brother, you know, that his uncle killed his father, and then the ghost hears the, the cock crow and says, I must go, and then says, adieu, adieu, remember me. And Hamlet then says, at his most distracted, I believe, in the play, I think that is his most, he scrambles to maintain himself after that, you know, earth-shaking revelation. And he clutches his head and says, remember thee, I, thou poor ghost, while memory holds a seat in this distracted globe, remember thee, yay. From, and he talks about wiping um, all baser matter from the book and volume of his brain. And I say to the students, what's this distracted globe? And they go, mm, what's his head? And I go, what was the theater called? The Globe. And what can you say about what's in a place like that? It's just, it's all about exploration of emotion and madness and love and folly. And so really, for me, the reading of that line contains the idea, as long as people remember these lines, I will remember you. It's a very deep acting message along the lines of, what is it, Sonnet 18? As long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Shakespeare knowing that this is a stand-up thing. And also in Hamlet, let's not forget, you've got Shakespeare, who would have been, this isn't quite what I'm after, but that's all right. We've, I may refer to this or not. I'm sort of making this up as I go along. But it's interesting that Shakespeare's, if Hamlet, Raymond Hawthorne, one of the titans of Auckland theatre, he said to me once, what would Hamlet be if he wasn't a prince? An actor. And what, when you think about Shakespeare's love of actors and when they put the play on, The Mousetrap, the play within the play of Hamlet, you have Hamlet directing the actors. Shakespeare as a mouthpiece telling actors how to act. In my versions where I was directing myself as Hamlet, I, it was kind of like the director, there was quite a nice overlay of imagery. But what does he say to those actors? He says, the first thing he says, speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. I say this to actors all the time, speak clearly, for heaven's sake, I can't understand you. I don't care if I, you look gorgeous. If I can't hear it, I don't care. Um, if you mouth it, as many of our players do, I'll just leave the town crier spoke my lines and do not saw the air so much with your arms thus, but use all gently or in the very torrent tempest and might I say whirlwind of your passion, 
How many young actors? I'm oh, passionate. You must acquire and beget a modesty that may give it smoothness. He goes on, be not too tame neither. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action with this special observance that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at first and now, was and is to hold, as it were, a mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own image, scorn her own feature, and the very age and body of the time, its form and pressure. And that is where I get all of my love from Shakespeare, of Shakespeare, and responsibility, I guess, because talking to these students, so I was asking myself, what is the responsibility of a modern director or actor? It's this, this mirror. It doesn't change. This changes. And the genius of Shakespeare to me is that so many of his works absorb everything that's happened since he wrote them and still reflects. You look at any of these plays, it's, it's the responsibility of the director to enhance that and to obey that instruction. Because what's the purpose of it if we're not doing that? It's all very well to dress Hamlet and ruffles and everything. But Shakespeare's actors looked like the audience. They wore the same clothes. Well, I believe that's what we need with Shakespeare. Different with the comedies a little bit because you can frame it. But when you're trying to get people to relate, they need to see themselves very clearly. And for me also, if Shakespeare was alive today, he'd be writing for Netflix, no question. He would be using all the lights and everything at his, you know, at his, and we can still do that. You know, we can still use all of those, um, those uh, uh, tools, those modern tools, and still use the same techniques that he did. All the world's a stage, all the men and women merely players. And constantly he is reminding the audience that they're in a theater. Look at Henry V, oh, for a muse of fire. That I, you know, I could invent all of that. I don't know that speech. I've never done Henry V. But uh, in King Lear, which I'm approaching, oh my gosh, you know, when we're born, we cry, we are come to this great stage of fools. And then he hits the ground and goes, this is a good block. And I read somewhere once that Shakespearean actors would refer to the stage as the block. I don't know how bona fide that is. Doesn't matter. I'm going to use it, you know, because anything that that brings the audience up to speed. And if you look at that technique of even soliloquies, you know, we always talk about um, we see Hamlet, we see to be or not to be quite often. You see this to be or not to be. But actually lights up everybody. I'm going to eyeball you all and I'm going to go to be or not to be. That is the question. And then we'll have a discussion, not a discussion. I will invite you into my mind. What would that look like if you walked into a room and saw Hamlet? It'd be like this, to be or not to be. That's the question. You'd think he was gone mad. But no, it's the audience that are invited into the play in a way which is, I know this is pretend. I'll pretend that it's real, but you're reminding me that it's pretending again by talking to me. Or using the device of, of a play. It's sort of, as Bertolt Brecht says, he, he isn't new. Shakespeare did it. Completely used the form of the theater to hammer home things. Um, what else do I want to say? Oh, yes. Two things. Uh, 
I was reading the papers this morning, um, quite funny. Um, I don't know if you've come across it. Haley Sproul is one of our local uh, talents. Um, she decided, uh, uh, this, I want to quote, this is quite funny. She's talking about King Lear. Um, I've just got a beef with Shakespeare over King Lear. Needs another edit, William. She said it needs more jokes. <laughs> more jokes, less crying. I'm like, ah? Huh? <laughs> Gags, a bit of a wink to the audience every now and then. Well, I think they're in there anyway. Like at the end, when King Lear's losing his mind and he's in the storm, which is actually in the middle, anyway, there we go. Um, there are gags there. <laughs> he's the king and now he's lost his mind. I do a comedy edit. I do a comedy pass. Well, yeah, tricky. It's just quite funny that, um, it's, that she was talking about it and we're about to do it. She thinks it's too long. Um, and she thinks that um, she thinks it's uh, too complex and Shakespeare's a little bit contrived. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I read, though, and this is actually something I, 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 I wasn't sure how to proceed today, but, well, first of all, before I do this, let's, there is something I want to look at, and that is, I think this might, I'm looking for what a piece of work as a man. Uh, I've done speak the speech. Do I click this? Do I? There. What a piece of work as a man. So the punctuation, punctuation, who decided on that? Yeah. Well, he didn't have anything to do with the printing. He was dead. So I'm not sure, and I've often, hit, a simple one is uh, from Macbeth. It's fascinating this, because from an acting perspective, it changes things. Um, if it were done when it is done, to well, it were done quickly. This is Macbeth, right? If it would just happen, if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, a line full of snakes, isn't it? Hissing snakes. Um, what about this? If it were done when it is done, then to well. It were done quickly if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his success. Very simple one, but the comma or the full stop goes into a different place and suddenly you have a different meaning. And the one in Hamlet for me uh, is this, and I've, I've chosen, this is the Arden Shakespeare, which has a different interpretation. And it's really, um, I've just got to find it first so I can, what a piece of work as a man how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, blah, 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 blah. What a piece of work as a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. In one of them, he's like a god. In the other one, he's an apprehension, how like a god. I find that quite a big difference. I always opt for how like a god because I love the idea of uh, the human need for some sort of divinity. We all love movie stars because why? They're sort of wah, wah. And I find that very, um, very appropriate. Um, I also love that speech because it's prose. Oh my gosh, you know, it's not even poetry, it's prose. And yet it is the most beautiful thing. Um, but I wanted to talk about uh, uh, two more things, if that's all right. Firstly, um, the woman, for, you might've read it today, a woman called Natalia Torkat from the Ukrainian Shakespeare Center. She says it's extremely important for people during the war 
to survive and not only physically, but spiritually and mentally as well. We keep reading Shakespeare because we need something that helps us to feel that life is worth living. The famous to be or not to be has often been used during the wartime because the nation has decided to be since the very first day of the full scale of invasion. So let's just have a think about that and listen to this, to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. It's a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep. To sleep, the chance to dream, ah, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contemplate, the pangs of despised love. The law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare body. Who would Fardell's bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from was born no traveller returns, puzzles the will? and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great itch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. There's Ophelia, I better go. Um, so, but what but when you put it in those terms, when you look at it like that, it's, it, it resonates, doesn't it? Yet another palimpsestic, palimpsestic thing about Shakespeare. Let's peel back. Let's see how much more does it, does it stand up and reflect? I find it invigorating. I think he's a Jan Kot, famous uh, Polish critic, I think 1960 or something, published this book, Shakespeare, Our Contemporary. And that's why I love this book. It's so old and new. And what you found coming through, you know, it's just so rich. And he is a contemporary writer and we should view him in that way. Otherwise, we're looking at something over there when in fact it's right here in front of us, which, you know, this whole debate lately about, you know, um, whether Shakespeare is relevant, whether we should elbow it, whether we should, is it a colonial thing? Not, that is to me an arrogant position to take. You need to actually just wake up and kind of smell the Shakespearean roses, I think. I'll finish with one thing, because I just love this, and people often, um, well, the sonnets. Now, let's talk about the sonnets briefly. I mean, yeah, you could fill worlds with the sonnets. But one thing that I really, Shakespeare's uh, ability to grab hold of those things which remain with us as part of the human condition all the time, love, Love's a big one. And all the frustrations 
and jealousies and dare I say um, evil that can spring out of the concept frustrated love jealous love all of that uh, you know Macbeth you can never what other play has ever been written about a tyrant showing someone the way to to kill to the way to get to the top is to kill therefore I do that I'm forever looking over my shoulder I mean this has been repeated so many times through history but this thing about love all through the sonnets we look at the mystery of the sonnets the first procreation sonnets and the young man that they were written for and then suddenly Shakespeare stopped saying hey you should get married so you can have children and you can have a copy of yourself it's cruel not to have the copy of your beautiful self and then suddenly shall I compare thee to a summer's day there's no demand on that there's just you're really beautiful and so he moves through this whole section sonnets is like a Shakespearean play in ultra slow motion to me and you know who is the dark lady how does this take all my love my love yea take them all you it seems like take this love that I have for you take the woman and have an affair with this woman or a relationship she's my love as well but take them all all of this depth the torture the agony the the beauty the profundity and then at the end of the sonnets there are these two little sonnets well they're the same size as the others but still um, but they're always kind of like treated as little nimpy pimpy little things about eros and the little love god but put in your mind the extraordinary depth of what he's been through and i always love this so this is the final sonnet so you can sort of think about I don't know think about this man wrapping them up I don't know if he did it all in one stretch I, you know all of the research I'm just saying here it starts it starts all lovely and then just think for a second sonnet 154 the little love god lying once asleep laid by his side his heart in flaming brand whilst many nymphs that vowed chaste life to keep came tripping by but in her maiden hand, the fairest votary took up that fire, which many legions of true hearts had warmed. And so the general of hot desire was sleeping by a virgin hand disarmed. This brand she quenched in a cool well by, which from love's fire took heat perpetual growing a bath and healthful remedy for men diseased. But I, my mistress thrall, came there for cure, and this by that I prove, love's fire heats water. Water cools not love. Thank you. <laughs>